0: This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. It goes without saying that the point of all but the most impenetrably experimental movies is the plot. What's the story? Is the first question most of us ask. But what is a story anyway? It's about now that most films get a little unstuck. The story isn't really the content at all, it's the structure. It's how the content is presented. It's got to have a shape of some sort, otherwise it's just a string of meaningless items, one damn thing after another, as the man said. Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. Doesn't sound too bad. Well, to start with, we need to know where we are, who's it about and what do they want. And at the end, there has to be an end, tied up in a neat little bow that tells you not only that we've reached journey's end, but this is what the journey has really been about. I could use a trip, but it doesn't make any difference about our bet you still owe me 10,000 francs. And that 10,000 francs should pay our expenses. Our expenses? mm mm-hmm. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Endings are a bitch, of course, which is why most screenwriters are bald from all that tearing of the hair. What's it about? What's it really about? Will there be huggings and learnings? Will you be so wrung out and exhausted you'll just be happy it's over? What day is this? It's Wednesday. Uh, It's it's Tuesday, I think. I think the tide's with us. Keep kicking. And is the fact that it's all true, or mostly true, or partly true, enough to make a film a story? The old based-on-real-life-events approach is a challenge. In theory, if it's an account of something important that happened, you owe it to everyone involved to make it accurate, surely. We're going to be dropped into France, dressed as civilians. We're going to be doing one thing, one thing only. Killing Nazis. Yes, Yes, sir! sir! Or maybe not. Are there people who saw Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards who think Hitler really was assassinated by a cool Jewish hit squad? Does anyone think Mel Gibson's Braveheart is historically accurate? Well, probably not, though both were the subject of hand-wringing editorials at the time. How much care should movies take to protect stupid people was the general theme. Would you be willing, for one chance... Just one chance to tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! The fact is, any account from the Encyclopaedia Britannica to some guy describing his game of golf in the pub is shaping events to make a good story. And they generally expect you to be able to weed through the based-on bits to get to the real-life events. Keanu Reeves, Alex Winters. Napoleon. We're from history. Billy the Kid. Oh, my God! Joan of Arc. Sigmund Freud. Tell me about your mother. What started me thinking about this was the release of New Zealand film Muru, a heavily fictionalised thriller based on the real-life Tuhoi raids of 2007. But since the original raids were based on some pretty fictitious evidence, maybe that was the best way to do it. also this week an independent dystopian future flick from the top of the south island whose overseas success has turned out to be the real story and from the master of stories about stories george miller turns an arabian nights fable on its head in three thousand years of longing stories were once the only way to make our bewildering existence coherent that's exactly right we gave name to the unknown forces behind all wonder and catastrophe by telling each other stories but first something's going on in the remote ruotoki valley murum From the opening frame of Muru, you're made aware this is the real thing. It looks and sounds fantastic. The A-list cast is dazzling, and the passion driving it seeps into every part of the film, apart from the title, which you have to know going in. If you realise Muru means forgiveness, it gives the already powerful ending an even bigger kick. Muru opens on an idyllic day in the bush. Local policeman Taff Williams, Cliff Curtis, is on bus duty today. His colleague Blake usually does it, but she's off on traffic duty. Well, Taff's busing the local kids to school and on the way dropping off a party of aunties to get mammograms from Dr Foon. (laughs) And you'll notice, I won't say it strikes you because it feels perfectly natural that everyone here speaks Tereo the local cops, the aunties, and the kids, even the Chinese doctor. So when English is spoken by a suspicious pair lurking in a big van, it feels intrusive. Sergeant Daffaro Williams, I'm calling to report an internal incident. What's the story, guys? What's with the tinted windows? One of your people assaulted my officer. Officer Blake asks for some details. They suddenly drive off, knocking her down. Taff rings the station to find out what's going on, only to be elbowed out of the way by the professionals, the elite STG unit led by arrogant Gallagher, Jay Ryan, and hot-headed Kimiora, Manu Bennett. They claim to have evidence of domestic terrorism. I want to know how it is you're here without me being informed. The surveillance team is currently logged a domestic terrorist. Six months of covert military training. Now, this is just five years after 9-11, of course, when everyone was looking for terrorists, particularly elite police units. They mutter darkly about guns and boot camps in the valley, led by well-known activist, ex-communist, beekeeper and artist Tamaiti. It all sounded like al-Qaeda to someone in Wellington. A group in your community has threatened to kill the Prime Minister. You don't know what you're doing, man. Tommy's not a terrorist. I need to know if you're a police officer I can trust. Are you with Tommy are you with us? Phones were tapped, picking up a lot of drunken ravings, what Taft dismisses as bush talk, but it was enough to trigger a major police raid. And despite the growing doubt about Tamaiti as a remotely plausible Osama bin Laden, it seems the operation was too far advanced to stop. (laughs) Get out! Get on the floor! Get down! <laughs> Armed to the teeth, the cops arrive, and the assault on the peaceful settlement is as shocking as it no doubt was when it happened. The mark of the class of Muru is how they intercut between the raid and the uncomprehending kids on the bus watching it. Look, ninjas, says one. Ninja. Everything's going to be all right. All we need is to get out. I don't know where he is. Possible assault weapon. He's just a boy. He's just... The police can't find Tamaiti, but they can find a teenager called Rusty, the local screw-up, galloping around the ninja cops, holding a gun he picked up somewhere. Taff can see where this is heading and races after him, trying to call the STG guys off. What's the? Is the shooter armed? Terrorist are. Boy. Once it becomes clear that, to quote Tennyson, someone had blundered here, there are only two ways to go. One is to pull back with apologies all round. The other is to pick sides and blast your way through it. Well, guess which way the invading cops take in Muru? So we have a situation. What happens if things go wrong? Is the shooter armed? What are you doing, man? Cleaning up your mess! By the end, there are good cops and bad cops, hot headed local kids and parents trying to save them, with local cops Taff and Blake fatally caught in the middle. And towering over it all is the inimitable presence of Tama Iti himself. Who else was going to play him? When Tama comes over the hill to confront the invaders, it's one of the great moments of New Zealand cinema. Oh, my God! know you're listening. If anything happens to any one of my people, I'll make sure no one in Tuho ever forgets it. Writer-director Teorepa Kahi, the cast led by Cliff Curtis and Simone Kessel, a crack crew battle-hardened by years of TV and feature films, they've all gone towards making Muru as good as it is. But more than that, they've turned over 100 years of events into just under two hours of cracking story and one that will stand up to repeated viewings. Too won't forget, and nor will you. Away from the comparative razzle dazzle of movies backed by the New Zealand Film Commission, there's a healthy tradition of low-budget films, often paid for by the filmmakers themselves. Films like North Spur, made by the Nelson Marlborough team of director Aaron Falvey and writer Justin Eade. Summers thinks that cabin of his is impregnable, but I've already unlocked it with my mind. Don't shoot. <laughs> Well, no one can accuse the makers of North Spur of thinking small. None of your moody man alone searching for meaning in his life for them. Instead, war breaks out around the world, an electromagnetic pulse takes out the power all over Australasia, and disease wipes out most of the country. And that's just in the first minute. He's safe. This being a micro-budget production, all this takes place in a quick opening caption, of course. And we open two years later on an idyllic valley. What is it about idyllic valleys in New Zealand films this week? A couple, Melinda and Kellen, Delaney Tabron and Josh McKenzie, lead a peaceful life there, scaring off roaming marauders with warning shots. How close? Very close. A warning shots going to keep him away. Not killing anyone. But one day, Melinda is injured and infected with that disease we were reading about. Kellen gives her his one gun, for warning shots, remember, and goes off to look for some medication. <laughs> I'm going to have to go out there and find those shots. Along the way, he passes various roaming groups of scavengers, many armed to the teeth with no scruples about not shooting anyone. I have to say, it's easy to get confused by the different groups who all seem to have their own agendas. Ah! Hey, p- please. The path you walk to this cabin is exactly right or you would have lost your legs. Kellan runs into a bit of luck, a well-appointed cabin that looks like the sort of place that might have a stash of medicine inside. He'll soon find out. He's looking down the barrel of a shotgun with the daunting presence of Marshal Napier behind it. I came looking for medicine, OK? My wife is dying and I... I got the drugs in need it was actually the final performance by the late Napier, for years a wonderfully reliable screen heavy on both sides of the Tasman, before a charming lighter performance in the film Bellbird. In North Spur, he plays with his more familiar persona, both menacing and deadpan funny, as the cabin owner Summers. I could do, do with your help feeding the cabin. I'll give you the drugs in the I'll help. It's just for a week. You get a blanket? not Airbnb. Summers will give Callan all the help he needs if, in return, he helps ward off some invaders, quite a few invaders. Aside from the walking randoms we saw before, there's one group led by a particularly hostile Michael Hurst, and another group led by the vindictive Shell. We're going after Summers, Kevin. He's a one-man arsenal. Two men now, apparently. Two men. I think one woman. Brilliant. There's some attempt to explain who everyone is, but Director Aaron Falvey is smart enough to realise it doesn't matter much. It's enough to know there's a bunch of heavily armed people with a grudge coming at us, and we need to keep them out. Me the pathogen follower. No weakness, no love. I'm OK with that. No, I think you are. Helen is conflicted. Can he ward off the bad guys and still maintain his pacifist ideals? Summers has no time for warning shots only and happily takes out any marauders with extreme prejudice. How's the pacifist? Proceeding like a like healing. Or fading like you're Slightly less satisfying are the constant cutbacks to the wounded Melinda at the old homestead. Not enough happens to her to warrant being distracted from Summer's Fortress, where most of the action is taking place. Though she does pick up an endearing little girl with a nice line in snappy dialogue. Is it just you? If you'd like, I can look after you now. I can look after you too... North Spur is another unexplained New Zealand film title. Couldn't they put up a road sign that reads North Spur welcomes careful drivers or something? But the best part of the story of North Spur is that it's been picked up by movie giant Lionsgate for release overseas. You can't beat a happy ending. Once compassion's left the building, believe me, ain't coming back. We're without love. I mean, what's the point in that? Australian filmmaker George Miller has made a career disguising some sophisticated storytelling behind singing pigs in Babe, dancing penguins in Happy Feet and most famously in the petrol head extravaganzas of Mad Max. The fable comes undisguised in his latest 3,000 Years of Longing. My name is Alethea. My story is true. I am a solitary creature by nature. I have no children, no siblings, no parents. I did once have a husband. We meet Alethea, Tilda Swinton, dialing back her usual exotic mystery a bit to play a buttoned up academic. Alethea's field is narrative. Why do we tell stories? What are they for? And one day, she finds herself strolling through the home of great stories, Istanbul. If there is fate, who can say? But in the Grand Bazaar of Istanbul, I chose a memento. In the back of a dusty little shop, she finds a mysterious misshapen bottle. She takes it home and gives it a good clean. To the surprise of anyone who hasn't seen the poster for 3,000 years of longing, polishing the bottle produces a gigantic genie or gin. I like it. Whatever it is, I'm sure it has an interesting story. I'm more surprised it's taken so long to put Tilda Swinton together with the equally charismatic Idris Elba in a movie, though the mix might be too rich for many directors. Not George Miller, though. He sets up the premise of the story immediately. So, what would he wish for? What is your heart's desire? I do have a question. What does one do with three wishes? You'll see. Three wishes, though in fact we've already been softened up to expect them. The number three crops up throughout the film. Hotel rooms, home addresses and of course in 3,000 years of fables where a djinn offers three wishes and it usually turns out badly. There's no story about wishing that is not a cautionary tale. But Alethea already knows this. She spent her entire life studying stories like 3,000 Years of Longing. She knows all the tricks and the fact that there usually are tricks. The djinn will have to box clever if he wants Alethea to make her wishes and free him from imprisonment. We all have desires, even if they remain hidden from us. But it is your story and I cannot wait to see where it goes. Oh, how it might end. So he tells her his story, or rather stories. Yes, there are three of these, starting with his first love, the Queen of Sheba, and how he was first trapped in a bottle by King Solomon. Against her will, Alethea finds herself drawn into the djinn's stories about his three imprisonments, each one caused, one way or another, by love. <laughs> Oh. Initially, she suggests an easy way to release the gin from the bottle and her life. Can't she simply wish for three quick, unimportant requests? You mock me. Three wishes, perfectly simple and theoretically safe. I was imprisoned by Solomon precisely because I cried out my heart's desire only by granting you yours may I earn my release. But stories don't work like this. They've got to be rooted in a heart's desire. And Anathea doesn't seem to have one. She lives a small, solitary life with a reasonably satisfying job. Three wishes are quite unnecessary. Yes, well, I appreciate the symmetry, but the thing is this. I cannot for the life of me summon up one eligible wish. And you're asking me for three. Is there any life in you? Are you even alive? You know, in some cultures, absence of desire means enlightenment. Then you are a pious fool. But this is the story of 3,000 years of longing, the sort of yearning that can only build up if you're trapped in a bottle at the bottom of an ocean for centuries or buried under a granite step in a forgotten palace basement. The Jinn has to not only explain this to Alethea, but get her to feel it too. Hello. Hello. He'll be staying for a while. Beginning to wish we never met. It's no mean task to try and encapsulate all of Scheherazade's Thousand and One Nights into one tale. George Miller was inspired by a short story by Booker Prize winner A.S. Byatt, and it's certainly like nothing else around. Despite the dazzling digital effects and the stellar lead performances, it retains the traditional appeal of someone recounting their wildest dreams round a campfire in an Arabian desert. Make a wish! Save yourself! I have a wish. Today, fantasy and fables are too often limited by comic books and spin-offs of older, better stories. So it's highly agreeable to spend time in an imagination like George Miller's, brought to life by collaborators as unpredictably creative as Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba. A banquet indeed. And as we reach for a small cup of Turkish coffee to finish, it's time to go. I'm Simon Morris and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week.